Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Thank you guys so much for coming. So this is, we're recording this, so this will actually be presented on, on the Petrons podcast. This is the first live podcast I've ever done. I'm super pumped to be here with Chris Wright. If you've ever listened to me or him, you know that we're, we talk a lot um, and we're very similar. So this will be very jam-packed and I'm expecting this. I'm going to go through a bunch of stuff. We're going to cover the global oil market and we're going to take this all the way back to a favorite topic, which is fracking. Um, and completions and Frex and and um, and then we're going to open it up to you guys. So I really do hope that you guys get up and get engaged and ask hard questions um, because we're both here to talk. So um, I'm going to jump right into it. So I think you've done a couple podcasts today, so you're you're kind of in the groove. I was warm up for you, Trisha. Warm yeah, up for you. That's good. That's really good. Okay, so global oil market right now we have uh, OPEX producing 27 million barrels, nearly 27 million barrels per day. And I know, you know, all the earnings calls, you guys included, there was talk on, there's talk on the global oil market, there's talk on OPEC, there's talking on, you know, producers being uh, stringent, I guess, to a degree in, in bringing everything back like crazy. But this past month, Saudi Arabia is producing 9.4 million barrels per day. So we're, we're definitely adding barrels back. We're edging up there. And this is all in light of, you know, the Delta variant increases and some, some concerns on, on coronavirus and some slowdown globally. Also with that is that we're exporting, and this gets into your ESG report, um, which is a very unique ESG report in that it's more about energy poverty um, and more about energy in general and what we're doing with energy as opposed to just talking about um, environmental, social, and governance, which we will get into as well. So we're exporting 3.3 million barrels a day crude. Total crude oil products, over, we're exporting over 9 million barrels a day, and we're exporting over a million barrels a day of propane. And I, to me, I think that's a pretty, those are pretty significant numbers and we're having a pretty big impact on the global oil and gas market um, in terms of being able to export that and to your issue report, being able to literally put fuel in people's homes that you can just carry in and, and be game changing. So I'm just going to open that up to you and let you jump in. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. You know, I think our industry spends way too much time when we defend ourselves saying it's a lot of high paying jobs, it's tax dollars, and it is those things. But way, way bigger is everything in the planet runs on energy. Everything. Can't have the internet. You can't build a windmill. You can't build a Tesla without a bunch of energy and without petrochemicals that come from oil and gas. So the biggest impacts, I think, of the shale revolution by far and away is just changing supply and demand in the global oil markets. We've probably cut the price in oil roughly in half of where it was before the shale revolution got to oil. Roughly the same thing for natural gas maybe a trillion and a half dollars a year savings for global energy consumers. So those are the headlines, but you never hear about those. Um, we talk about details and you mentioned propane and we can come back to that. That's my favorite of all hydrocarbons and I love hydrocarbons, but propane is the bridge fuel from dire energy poverty, cooking meals, burning wood, dung, uh, agricultural waste in your hut to having a clean burning cooking fuel and liberating two hours every day of the women in the households. So yeah, pro propane is the road to freedom, the road to prosperity, the road to longer, better lives. So the U.S. went eight years ago, 
We were the eighth largest propane exporter in the world. We've grown our exports by more than a factor of 10. And today we export as much as the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh largest propane exporters in the world combined. So yes, if we wanted to talk about what's the ESG impact of the oil and gas industry and our US industry and the shale revolution, that's number one on the list. And I think of propane, I mean, I grew up in rural America, so I grew up with propane and cooking with propane. And it was actually, I mean, I love natural gas and I think uh, propane is one of my favorite hydrocarbons as well. But I th it's, it's a high BTU content. And so it's something that a lot of times when you're out with friends and you're just like sitting by the fire and like, man, it feels really good. And it's a different heat, like little, that's a different, I have a natural, my, I have a piped natural gas fireplace in my backyard and it's not as hot as my a propane fire, like a, from a bottle, it's not as hot because that has a lower BTU content. And I think when I just think of literally taking that, hauling that jug, you know, that the canister into a home in effort or something, I mean, that is a high BTU content that you can turn on and off and you can game change, not just someone's life for cooking, but you can actually um, give them heat as well. And that's huge. So when you're around the fireplace outdoor after drinks with with the, your friends, you're talking about BTU content. So I like that, Tricia, and I'm, I'm understanding where the second half of your name came from. So awesome, and I'm right there with you. Yes, um, I am actually. Uh, so George Sparks, I was I was sitting by his fireplace at his house, and I was like, ooh, and I was like, this is really nice. And he's like, you're gonna get into some propane comment, aren't you? And we did. Yes, hundred percent. I, I I love natural gas, um, and we also we can also get into we can dovetail to that in a moment because I will get into the frac sand stuff at the very end, uh, it being a smaller molecule, and I still think we're going to increase production. But so into this ESG thing, into component, and I think this is really big because I get I talk about uh, ESG quite a bit. I talk about China quite a bit in my podcast. I mean, I do it for clients, and I and I work on it quite a bit. And I really do think that we have focused really heartily on the E. Um, and are we as a society, I mean, in the past several months, the past years, we're focusing on the E really heartily. We've forgotten the S and G, which are a huge component and used to be a big deal. And particularly the reason I think it's um, it's important to point out is that so China is is where we're getting the bulk of our wind and solar is from China. Department of Energy has just issued a big solar push on how we can you know increase our solar usage. Well, we only have about three percent of our power is coming from solar now. But apparently in 15 years, we can. And I say that jokingly, but we, we can grow that. Technically, we could grow lots of solar, lots of wind um, by covering up land and, and building the solar. But 80% of all the solar panels and polysilicon comes from China. 50% of that comes from the province of Xinjiang. And the province of Xinjiang is where there's, uh, people say alleged, but they're not alleged if you've actually read um, the Amnesty International and every other report on human rights abuses within Xinjiang. So that to me is about the S and the G, which drives me a little bananas, um, that we have human rights violations in a place that we're gonna buy all this solar and wind, by the way, because the third largest wind manufacturer for onshore wind turbines is Xinjiang Goldwind, Goldwind being a, a huge turbine manufacturer. So we're purchasing it from this place. And to me, it's, it's ethically wrong. Um, and, and not to mention that, that there's massive things going on within China and the viability of us even getting this stuff long-term might not be there. I mean, because they're just doing massive crackdowns. So our ability to sort of invest in, in China and everything, it's, it's very complicated. Right, so since I was a kid, one of the dreams of, of all presidents from Jimmy Carter in the 1970s forward was energy independence. We need to produce energy here. We need to be less reliant um, on this to control the supply, the price, the geopolitical risk. And then we achieve it just in the last few years, right? And, and the, the celebration lasted about six months. 
And then everyone was on to something else that was wrong with the energy mix. And you're just pointing out another one, right? If we go down the road that's talked about, of course, we will essentially reverse energy independence and in our dominant imports will be from China instead of from the Middle East or Asia. I worry, I mean, and I think that's very real and we should talk about it, but the chances of wind and solar, you know, being major suppliers of global energy are extremely small. Like you, you, you made the comment today, solar's 3% of power. And when people write and all that, they, 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 can, they conflate power and energy, mm-hmm. power and energy. Oh, it's, it's 3, 3% of energy, well, that's a start. No, no, Gl- globally, solar power is not even remotely close to 1% of global energy, not even remotely close. Because electricity, you know, which, which in, in a wealthy society like ours, it's close to 40%, not 40% of the energy we consume. Globally, it's less than 20%. Right. So globally, wind and solar combined have gotten to about 10 percent of global electricity supply or about 2 percent of global energy supply. That's two decades, two trillion dollars of subsidies and and malinvestment. And that 2 percent of energy is probably the lowest value energy we get of all the other 98 percent. And the reason for that is when I walk in my house, I want the light switch to turn on when I turn it on. You know, and when my my washing machine is done, I want it to just turn off. That's not how wind and solar work, right? I went to I worked in solar energy in graduate school. I went to college to work in fusion energy. I worked in geothermal for years. I have no oil and gas in my background. I don't care where energy comes from, but it's got to be affordable, reliable, um, and able to lift up human lives. So intermittent energy sources that require subsidies and a huge amount of land and only participate in the electricity sector. They're going to grow for sure, but are they going to be like the future of the energy supply? No chance. Yeah, and I think that's the problem I have is that it's it is pushed and it has to be forced. So there's a lot of um, excitement, a massive amount of excitement around ESG, around green tech, and solar and wind, um, and particularly because we do have a lot. We have this, you know, Executive Order fourteen zero zero eight, which put which helps. You know, there's tailwinds pushing all this, and I can't tell you how many phone conversations I have, how many Zoom calls, how many people I talk with you know, board members and stuff that are literally that's that's, you know, this is it and saying, well, how can you go against this? And I, it's it's hard because you have to do a massive amount of research to really understand that if you're investing in this, it can break. I mean, it, it, I, I have to think that it's, um, you know, there's lots of issues within China, not just just with the the human rights stuff, but the fact that you are building on the back of coal. Um, and so the reason I can say for for the energy transition, I, I think breaking down from a solar, not even just a solar and wind standpoint, but is that you will need a, most of these countries in Asia do need energy. And um, most of them right now, natural gas is a little expensive, but a lot of them do want to get off, um, a lot of them do want to get off coal. Indonesia, I think, has actually just had one of the first lawsuits with the people are suing, and they're, they're suing, they brought, talked about it with climate change, but they were actually suing with regards to the environment from the pollution. And so the folks were, they were wanting a cleaner air quality. And that really comes down to the quickest and easiest way I think they're going to do that, whether they, they can say they want wind and solar when they realize how difficult this build, it's probably going to come back to natural gas. In the U.S., I think it's going to be really tricky is because unlike China, we have regulations and you can't just bulldoze down homes and you can't just build transmission lines. I mean, we've been trying that the, the power, you know, the windmills that you, we built in Wyoming that we're trying to get power to California, that's been going, what, 10 years? And they still don't have that done because they haven't been able to do prostrate transmission lines. So, you know, these executive orders just seem they're very um, exciting for uh, for the wind and solar industry. But the, I think the reality behind them is relatively thin. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take that uh, on two fronts. Yeah, look, huge money is going. There's huge interest. There's no doubt a lot more wind and solar will be built. The technologies are getting better. Solar, I think, certainly has a role to play in the long run. I, I'm modestly positive to that technology. But to be scalability across the energy source, quite limited. Wind is so much lower energy density. It takes so much land, so much steel, so much materials to make a relatively modest amount of, of um, intermittent energy source. I, I think we will see peak wind power, you know, certainly way before we'll pe see peak oil or peak natural gas production. Um, and the other thing quick on wind, when people say, oh, well, it's zero carbon. I mean, just a few, a few things about a wind tower. So the wind towers, now they're bigger, so you're higher up and higher winds. But inside every tower of a wind farm, inside the tower is over 100 tons of coal. Right to make a wind tile, that's iron and carbon, and the carbon that goes into that goes into the iron to make steel comes from coal, coking coal. So a hundred tons of coal inside of every wind turbine. It takes an enormous amount of additional coal, and 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 slowly moving towards natural gas in process heat to get that carbon into the steel. The blades are made out of oil and gas. That's the base material for fiberglass that the blades are made out of. Um, all the metals, all the electronics, how do you mine and produce metals and, and refine metals and build everything? It's all, it's diesel trucks out in a mining thing, natural gas processing. They're shipped across the ocean on boats. They're maintained by people driving around in diesel trucks and all that. So I mean, I, I, I could go on and on, but basically you, you have no prospect of building a wind tower, maintaining a wind tower or operating a wind tower without oil and gas. What do you think lubricates the big bearing at the top of a wind tower? Um, and the same thing is true for solar. So, you know, they're not replacements for oil and gas. They're enabled, they're technologies that are enabled by oil and gas. Um, they will grow, but again, they, they need to be able to grow without subsidies. Um, think, and that probably doesn't, I don't, I don't, that's not in the near term. It's not in the near term. I think that if you're listening to different podcasts, certainly there's a podcast called the Energy Transition Show. That one, they would probably disagree with us heartily on here. But I think the reality is, and this is where I struggle with a lot of this, the policy, and this is purely from a, a risk standpoint, when I'm advising businesses and stuff on, on what they're doing, and some people just, they don't want to hear it, but it's a reality mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of risk to this. So if you're investing in, in, in green tech, you know, there's a risk from an inflation standpoint, there's a risk from higher interest rates, there's, there's a lot of risk, but there's also risk in that, um, I think, politically, is that if you're, if the goal is CO2 emissions, you're going to increase CO2 emissions when you're already increasing them because we're the economy is more active because people are driving more because, you know, there I think there must be a curb thing in Denver because all the curbs are being redone. That's all from diesel, <laughs> you know, diesel caterpillars, you know, running around and great. It's a new pretty curb. All of this infrastructure is run on the back of hydrocarbons. And so if you have these big infrastructure bills and stuff that go through um, and they pass and we spend three point five trillion dollars, not we won't just have inflation, but we're going to have a rise in CO2 emissions. And I think it's going to be hard if, you know, five, six, 10 years down from the road, people don't, one, the CO2 emissions haven't declined, and two, you know, the populace doesn't see a change in the weather. What happens when, you know, what happens to all this stuff and all this legislation, let alone the bill that this stuff costs? And I, we're talking trillions of dollars. And I think that can bankrupt small countries um, that are spending all this money. And so it gets really tricky when you have a lot of uh, policies dictating um, stuff that is, is hap actually happening on a day to day. And I don't think we've seen that type of on um, th that type of sort of a regulatory structure, at least not in my lifetime. 
um, where I think the regulatory risk is really, really high and, and permeating into the market. Yes. You look, uh, yeah, to me, what I worry about is the impact on the average person. So yeah, malinvestment of trillions of dollars. Ultimately, that's people that are working today. That's going to be their kids. That's going to be a future drag on economic growth. Unfortunately, that's just that's sort of abstract to people, you know, politicians of all stripes. It's just politically beneficial to spend money today because it's going to be paid off by another generation or two. So that's a bipartisan problem. Just spend the money and do it later. What, what becomes a more immediate political problem is the cost of energy when someone drives up to the gas station to fill up their car or when someone pays their utility bill. I think ultimately it's not the data in, in, in our ESG report or the data you and I talk about. I think the direction we're running headlong, headlong likely stops and ultimately reverses as people just rebel in what's happening with energy costs. Um, and so people tell me, well, yeah, look at the levelized cost of energy and solar is actually cheaper now than natural gas. And um, first, the idea of a levelized cost of energy is, is silly. And even the EIA admits that now because energy that you don't know when it's going to, well, it's going to be during the day when the sun's out, unless the clouds are there or it's wintertime. That's not the same as the energy that, you know, the guys on life support and, and the, th the machines are running to support them. And when they turn them off, they go off and they turn them on. They, those are different quantities, actually. Um, but the, the thing to look at instead of going into that, I do go into those weeds because people want to talk about it. But what the best thing to look at is where people have installed a lot of wind or solar or past energy mandates. What's happened to the energy costs in those states? And of course, there's great data on that, both, you know, in Germany and Denmark and England, California, where I lived for a long time, as you know, as we talked about, everywhere that a lot of money has been in subsidized money has been invested in cheap energy everywhere. Energy prices have risen significantly. And if you average it across all the states with renewable mandates versus all the states that don't, the, the difference is dramatic. But I'll just talk briefly about California. I lived there for 19 years. Um, California, you know, this incredibly wealthy state, it was truly the land of opportunity for decades, right? That's where immigrants and people from across this country went out to make their business and make their way. It now, according to the U.S. Census Bureau data, has the highest adjusted poverty rate in the nation. It's 50th out of 50. It's not like it dropped from the top. It has the highest poverty rate of any state in this country. Um, and blue collar jobs and in industry have just been exported out of California. If you make energy expensive and less reliable, you know, wealthy people will put in diesel generators and they are selling like hotcakes in California. Everyone who's wealthy has got their own generator because they can't rely on their electricity grid. But of course, blue collar, recent immigrants, people working hard that weren't so lucky, they don't have diesel generators, right? They're paying high electricity prices. They don't live on the coast with the benign Mediterranean climate. They live inland where it's hot. Their cooling bills are dramatically high in the summer. And the blue collar people tend to work in energy intensive industries like manufacturing or agriculture, transportation. Um, and those jobs are just leaving California. Um, so if we want to look at what policies do to human quality of life, you know, the data is just compelling. Well, I'm going to, this is a good segue because I think this brings us a little bit back into the Rockies because I was going to, we'll, we'll come back probably to some of these regulatory, these bigger regulatory things. And I think that one, none of these policies have actually, and actually the environment, we, it, people get excited about it, but they don't actually address demand. So when we look at actual, you know, you can, the U.S. is one of the only places where you actually have um, really good data, right? The EIA shows you really good data on, we have U.S. products supplied, which is, is demand. And we were at last week, 22 million barrels a day. 
Like, holy crap. People say, you know, COVID has has gotten like, we're, we're never going to drive again and everything. Well, actually, we drove again. Traffic is higher in most cities than it was pre-COVID because everybody has changed their habits and people actually are driving more and they're, you know, you know, rush hour is horrible in Denver and it's horrible everywhere because people are getting their kids and they're grocery shopping and they're leaving work earlier. They're not going to work or whatever it is. And you have these massive dislocations in addition to um, unemployment benefits have rolled off. So um, hopefully some people will be getting back to work and we'll have some, some quelling of inflation, but the oil demand side has not been addressed. The, the desire to, um, the desire to produce less in the U.S. has certainly been worked on. And there's a couple of regulatory things, I think, you know, in Colorado, we have seen it where there's a race on permits. Everybody just wants permits. And you started, you're, you have a had a, you have a business in Basin, Colorado. You, you know the frack side in Colorado. And you certainly know, and we've seen production dive in Colorado. I always say Colorado is a little similar to New Mexico in the sense that when you broke down, when I broke down the, the wells producing, of all the production I mean, we were producing, over over half a million barrels per day in Colorado, and almost all of it was coming from a 6,000, 7,000 horizontal wells in Weld County, in one little area. That's where the majority of this was coming from, and it, it's dropped off a cliff um, since we haven't been, you know, it's declined considerably, and that's revenues that we've lost in Colorado. And then in tandem with this, and which is why I really struggle with it, is that Excel wants to, has, has said they want to raise rates by 13%. And so not only are we and I know they're not the two aren't completely connected, but the reality is, is that, you know, we were a state that had was bringing in good revenue from this. We've declined it. It's not like we have to. You know, we could be drilling for more oil and gas. We have capped how much natural gas we have in um, in the electricity pool and rates going up thir- by 13 percent would impact a lot of consumers. That just isn't I mean, that's that's middle con- that everybody at the bottom for sure. But 13 percent is a is a pretty hefty increase for electricity bill. Yeah. And, and it's and it's. And it's choices of where businesses are going to locate and where they're going to do things. If Colorado is on its pathway to become an expensive, less reliable energy state, that will change investment. That will change quality of life here, again, particularly for lower income people. And look, I've engaged with politicians and folks on this dialogue, as you have Stu in Colorado. And the answer was always emphatically, no, we're going to do it. We're going to we're going to go to this, you know, higher percent of, you know, I hate the term green energy because it's it's dishonest. But we're going to go to whatever that, you know, I will say intermittent politically popular sources of energy, uh, which is what they really are. We're going to go to that, but it's not going to make electricity more expensive. We won't do it if it won't if it will make electricity more expensive. I heard that answer 10 times over years. And, and of course, I always said, well, if you do, that'll be remarkable because we'll be the first jurisdiction ever to do it. And of course, we're not going to be the first jurisdiction ever to do it because as you saw, when, when we have a storm, like Colorado had that same storm that hit Texas hits here. When you have storm and tough conditions, intermittent supplies of energy almost completely evaporate. You know, if that's 50 percent of our capacity, we're going to and we're nowhere near that. But in states where that's 50 percent of the potentially generation capacity, you hit a storm and it goes down to 5 percent. Well, that's at peak energy demand. And that other 95 percent has to come from somewhere. So it turns out in Ger- Germany proved this. Right, Germany went to this large percent of their energy from re- from renewable electricity, not energy, electricity, not energy. Germany still gets just under 80% of its total energy from fossil fuels, where they used to be just over 80%. But their electricity grid, they've gone to say 30%, uh, 25, 30% from expensive intermittent uh, energy sources, but they didn't shrink their capacity of the other energy production. You, you, 
you, you need the same grid you had before because your, your demand at peak is the same as it was before. It didn't change at all. So you need that entire grid and you have to build a second set of capacity and grid so that when the wind is blowing and when the sun is shining, you can draw energy from that. So now you've got to operate two energy systems and you've made the first energy system less efficient now because a natural gas power plant running at maximum efficiency humming along, that has one level of greenhouse gas, one level of cost structure, one level of efficiency. But now it's a turn off, turn on, turn off, turn on, go up 10%, go down 5%. Same power plants, but they're burning less fuel and they're running in a less efficient, more maintenance intensive fashion. So I mean, it's just sort of common sense. Of course, this is gonna drive energy prices to go up. But I think the view is if we just keep saying it enough that they're cheaper and it won't, that the public will buy it. The public will buy it until energy prices go up. Well, and they're, and they're, and they're going up. So that's what, that's what kind of drives me a little batty is that we have inflation. We have very real inflation. And yet we have a, and the, we don't have a, it, I pay attention to, you know, major sor sources for market news. I mean, so it's Bloomberg, CNBC, BBC and other outlets, and they're incredibly, um, they're incredibly biased on, on energy um, and certainly on, and certainly on China. But on inflation, it's at least today on CNBC, you know, the major traders, you see them talking and everything. And, and there was a woman on, on CNBC today and she finally said, we have a Fed who has no idea what they're doing. I mean, we have inflation, the energy prices are up, the you go to the grocery store, prices are up and yet we're not doing anything about it. And they don't, they consider this trans transitory, it's no big deal. But the reality is, is that all of it's going up. And so when people pay, have to pay more, they're spending less in other places. And so what's interesting to me is that we have the unemployment data, which is not shocking. I mean, it's 5.2% for unemployment, um, but we have 10.9 million jobs open. And you guys talked about this in your earnings call. Every single company in, in, in the industry talked about it in their earnings call and every single company out of it. Actually, Union Pacific, I think, said today that, holy crap, inflation across the board, they couldn't even get people to mow lawns uh, near their um, where their rail yards are because they couldn't find people. And you have 10.9 million jobs open. So to me, this is it's a self-induced problem when you have, you know, we didn't need unemployment benefits to stick around through September. And so hopefully some of that will go away. But it's very, very real inflation. And so you tack on this, this energy piece and you say, OK, that's that's an addition to it. But my problem is it's not solving anything. So CO2 emissions do not have borders as far as I understand them. So it's not like we can box off Colorado and we can say, hey, look, we're we're going to do this fine. And from my knowledge, also, we have a county commissioner in Boulder who has basically said that when CO2 emissions, but basically when we get net zero, um, this is George Parks was telling me this, so I'm, I could be botching this. But when we get to net zero, the weather's going to go back to where it was. Who knows what that reference point is? And the snowmelt will go back. And it's it's either either that person is not telling the truth or they really don't know. And there's a problem to me with both. Um, that they don't know what they're saying or they're not telling the truth. And the problem I have is that when we push this and everybody is, is going for this and they're not taking a step back and, and giving some some realistic criticism, which, which the oil and gas industry does does a decent amount of realistic criticism. But in terms of this energy, it's that you China has 65 percent of its uh, of power. And this is what they say. So you can't exactly believe it. But 65 percent of the power is coming from coal. You can actually go to carbon tracker. I mean, this data is public when people say, well, China's building another coal fired power plant every week. It's public data. You can go get it. It's on Carbon Tracker. You can actually see all the coal mines in Germany. Germany has a very, you know, uh, several coal mines. They have thousands of people employed by the coal industry. They didn't get rid of those because those jobs are important to them. They also use that coal. About 30% of power in Germany is coming from coal, roughly the same amount of coal power that we get in Denver. So if you have a Tesla, great, but you're plugging it into at least 30% coal in Denver. 
Um, so, I mean, this is just that it's a reality that you can do all this stuff. It's costing a lot. It's costing people, lower income people, a lot of money. And is it reducing CO2 emissions? And China is the only country in all of 2020 that actually increased CO2 emissions significantly. I mean, it wasn't a small little blip. I mean, all of us reduced CO2 emissions. It was is partly how the world sort of harnessed this let's build back better and let's build back greener is because of the drop in oil demand and reduction in CO2 emissions, largely in the U.S. with transportation. But China didn't. Actually, the CO2 emissions increased. That's because so much of everything is built on is, is built on the back of coal, but it's also not extremely efficient businesses, not extremely efficient use of energy. They have lots of redundancies and they overbuild capacity. Xinjiang is one of the provinces in which they... They build all the heat up the polysilicon and make the solar panels and build the wind and they build it with with coal power because it's cheap um not a, not just you know forced labor which is also cheap but that's that's cheap too and so it's the reality to me is just a reality check of i don't know what problem we're solving if we're going to work ourselves to death in colorado to reduce emissions and and i understand the moral argument behind it i respect people's vantage points but yet there is a cost to it and if it doesn't reduce emissions then you people need to start asking what the hell is going on I mean, yeah, being candid, I'll give you my, my take on that. My experience, I've been involved in sort of the climate change energy debate for probably at least 20 years. I probably gave my first climate change talk to a big audience 20 years ago. Um, and, and look, the math, the data, every, everything is out there. The understanding actually hasn't, it, it's progressed in the last 20 years, but not fundamentally. Like we do know more things, we have better measurement data, but the fundamentally, the understanding is the same. But in 20 years of dialogue, of policymaking and all that, one thing is quite clear. It isn't about emissions. It isn't about emissions. You know, if it's, look, there's two ways to really drive down greenhouse gas emissions. It's just simple math, right? You can switch from coal to gas and you can build more nuclear. Both of those move the needle. And in the U.S., it wasn't a policy thing, and I'm thankful for that. It was just an economic thing that natural gas became cheaper than coal and uh, particulate matter, socks, and NOx emissions are lower burning natural gas than coal. So you do get cleaner air, but it was driven dominantly just by economics. So the U.S., you know, coal went from 20% of our electricity, over 50% of our electricity to less than 25% of our electricity, still almost 50 in Colorado. But in natural gas went from very little. In fact, in the 70s, it was illegal to build a natural gas power plant because we're going to run out of natural gas, got to build coal plants. Um, now we've ramped up natural gas, natural gas, nearly 40% of U.S. electricity. And because of that huge change in things, United States greenhouse gas emissions on a per person basis are lower than any year since I was born. So like we are the all around all time stars. They're 1990, they were pre-COVID, they were at 1992 levels. So we were the only in, major country declining. And now we're with COVID, it was, it dropped down. It I'm talking pre-COVID even yeah. without COVID. I'm talking per capita basis, they're the lowest since the late 50s now. Yep. On a gross basis, they're the lowest since the early 90s, almost, yeah. almost 30 years ago. So those targets, so, though, we're, we're, but, we've been hitting those targets without all this spending. We were hitting them anyway. And no one's happy. And right? Because no it's, yeah. not, it's <laughs> not, it's not, because honestly, it's just, it's not about emissions. Look, I, I've debated climate change advocates, and, and they'll pretty quickly admit that they don't actually know that much about climate change. They don't know the numbers. They don't know the data. Um, um, I debated one time a scientific guy, actually a professor from CSU, and he he thought he was coming down to explain that the, that the fact that CO2 absorbs infrared radiation was indeed a fact. Like, I've never met anyone who didn't think that was a fact, you know. He, did, he didn't understand that. That's not what the debate's about. It's not, you know, do greenhouse gases absorb infrared? Well, they do. 
The question is, what's the impact of that? And what are the trade-offs to do something about it? Well, and that's the thing is that, so I have people that, I mean, the folks that I work with and, and folks that, that may or may not want to work with me, uh, I was actually told yesterday over the phone uh, that I was a cheerleader for the industry, um, which I was a little bit shocked. I mean, I am very passionate about this business, but I, I do a lot of research. And what kind of kills me is that if you are not assessing this stuff, if you're not digging into the politics and understanding it, you are not assessing the risks. So if you're investing in wind and solar or anything in green tech and you have not done your homework, it's the same for oil and gas and, and melding. But I, I'm a little bit concerned because the oil and gas industry is leaning pretty damn hard, every business is, into ESG and they're talking about it and everything. And I think you have to do it in a, you have to reality check yourself of what you're doing from a greenwashing standpoint and what you're doing for real. Um, and it, the kind of impact you're actually having versus just um, just talking about it and trying to get somebody to buy your stock. Let, let me, Trish, let me, let me finish that, that this point on greenhouse gas emissions. So look, one of us is a stated nerd. One of us is a lifelong nerd. So definitely two, <laughs> two nerds at the front, right? So to me, things that are, things that are quantifiable and they're about economic trade-offs, well, they should be about the numbers. You got to wrap them in a nice story and all that. I mean, I get politics, but the, the numbers should be there at the core. I testified in the Colorado Senate, you know, like two or three years ago, they're passing the greenhouse gas emission bill. And, um, and I just did the simple math. If we did everything that hit the bill's targets, which are actually quite unlikely, but if we did, and you run it through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change sort of uh, composite model, it would lower the global temperatures by less than one one thousandth of a degree like absolutely orders of magnitude below anything we could measure. Like the economic benefit of that is indistinguishable from zero. Um, but we were gonna spend tens of billions of dollars. And so I asked, you know, what's the, the trade-off? We're gonna spend some money, but we're gonna get some benefits. Like can, no one wanted to talk about, there was just no, it was like, who is this guy? He's talking about numbers. Like, you know, honestly, that's, that, I, I did this, I, I testified in the House Climate Crisis Committee. If we were able to hit Joe Biden's aggressive goals, and again, basically no chance of it happening, but 50% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050, and remain net zero for the rest of the century. I don't know if that's certainly measured in tens of trillions, likely measured in hundreds of trillions. I'm not sure it's physically achievable on that timescale, but that in the same intergovernmental panel on climate change model would reduce the temperature in 2100 by seven one hundredths of a degree versus if we just did what we kept on doing. So what, where's the argument that we should spend a hundred trillion dollars, even seven one hundredths is way below the measurement threshold of change in temperature. So if it was about emissions, they would be knowledgeable about emissions. They would look at the most efficient way to lower emissions. Wind and solar like do lower emissions somewhat. Electric cars, it's, it's questionable but whether they, they don't, do. But they don't do much at all. But I'm saying electric cars are like the worst. They're the right. most expensive way to lower emissions, but they're the most popular. And they're because so, you can feel it and people can buy it. But the trouble I have is that you that's that's where that's they're where sexy and rich people like them. Yes. Like and, that's that's what politicians are about. Right. Who is their constituency? Right. You want to feel good. You want to have something sexy, something you feel cool at the cocktail party. That's the constituency of politicians of both parties. And I, I think I was telling somebody else today over the phone because we were talking about oil. Somebody asked me if uh, somebody asked me about electric vehicles and the market penetration. And I was like, well, 
I mean, realistically, yes, you're gonna people want EVs and we're pushing because you hear every day on every day on the market, it's it's Ferrari, Lamborghini, everybody's saying, okay, we're gonna stop producing our our gasoline guzzling engines, you know, by 2024 or whatever it is. And that it is a bit shocking to me because I don't think the demand is there. Um, I know I actually know it's not there because in 2020, um, we paid basically the auto industry thought that they were going to have the bang up year. They were going to sell over hundred million vehicles and it didn't happen obviously because of COVID. But what did happen was that you did have record electric vehicle sales. And that was largely from countries that had massive subsidies and in Europe, um, some States in the U S and then you other had another record sale and that was used internal combustion engine cars. Um, and those have gone through the roof and you know that because you've seen the inflation on them. They're like basically a third over, over sticker. I mean, you Kelly Blue Book your car and you can basically get a third more for it because of inflation. Now, people are demanding those. For, they want to buy them. People only just want to buy them. There's a reason. you they There's a comfortability. And I know that, um, I mean, Lewis Baltimore and I have talked about this at length um, and on a podcast too of what's your level of comfortability on, on your range anxiety and everything. It's a pretty big deal. I mean, I can't drive home. My home is 200. My folks live 200 miles in, in, from here in Northwest Colorado. I'm not going to have the same level of comfort in an electric vehicle in the dead of winter on rabbit ears that I'm going to have in an F-150 that's loaded with gasoline and I can get stuck and I can keep the heater on. And it's a reality. I just don't think that at least for it's very different in Europe. You know, they don't have the same kind of gasoline demand and, and stuff as we do. We also have higher NOx and SOx requirements. So when you mention that, we have higher emissions We've always had higher NOx and SOx requirements than globally. That's where the whole Volkswagen scandal actually came out of, was that we they focused on uh, miles per gallon and GHG emissions, and we were focusing on NOx and SOx, and they never could get it. Volkswagen could, no one could ever get a diesel engine into a car into the U.S. because of those emission standards. And this whole flip is that it all has trade-offs. And I I would say it's all, it's it's going to be very messy how this all plays out. Oh, I agree. And and the emission standards of pollutants, I think, is very important. Yes. They're, they're going to be driven so low that really it's just going to make cars more expensive and businesses leave. So there's this whole thing about these, these models of health when they use zero uh, threshold and then a linear extrapolation, you know, not, nothing in, in the real world fits that. So this is about to be abused. That's my qualifier. But actually driving down particulate matter and socks and NOx has been a great thing. Yep. And of all the major wealthy industrial countries in the world, the United States, together with Canada and Australia, have by far the cleanest air in the world. Far cleaner than all the countries in Europe. But everyone thinks they're the environmental heroes, right? Because they talk about greenhouse gas emissions. But, and then you talk about electric cars. The other thing I, I would say, it's, it's very important in energy to look at the numbers. Look at what actually happens. The only thing we really know about energy is in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Politicians and activist groups and people, environmental groups claim the wackiest stuff and it gets huge press coverage. But of course it's, 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 it's chance of being reality is very small. So like when California came out with they're not gonna allow the sale of inter internal combustion energy engines by 2035, this is the new pathway, every state will follow California, I guess this is what's happening. You know, what they didn't talk about in that news story was that was the seventh low emission vehicle mandate passed in California, the seventh. If you look back at the previous six over the last 30 years, none of them remotely came close to any of the targets they claimed. And of course, five years later, they were forgotten. A few years later, there was a new one. This is just the seventh one. It's just a proclamation. You know, it does not mean in any way it's going to happen or anything close to it is going to happen. And mandates never... Uh... 
we're not politicians aren't typically very good at um, knowing the market. So everything is in the rearview mirror. We're even look back at oil and gas. We'll look back at oil demand globally. We don't know exactly. I mean, they revise it every year. So the International Energy Agency, OPEC, even the U.S. is constantly revising oil demand in a backwards view. We know it pretty well in the U.S., but globally, we always revise it. So is it 90? Are we at 97 million barrels per day of demand today? Are they always you're tweaking? You don't even you don't even have a perfect outlook on on supply, but you have a we have a problem with if you mandate it like ethanol under the Bush administration. We mandate now we didn't mandate a percentage of ethanol that had to go into the pool. We mandated a volume, a volumetric mandate of ethanol, so we could we could lower, so we could we were growing crops to put in our car, um, and then we were going to lower um, our dependence of of imports for gasoline or, or the number of different reasons that we want to do that for the gasoline. But it it caused problems because we had a blend wall of too much ethanol in the gasoline pool, and it's always been an issue of this of this number, this mandate that's been you know that's been pushed, and so these numbers get really tricky, especially when the force. It's usually folks can't comply. You have refineries that go bankrupt, and it's a it's a really messy system. And we've we're already seeing it, you know, with these changes in refineries. Like if, if we have a Suncor refinery is here in in Colorado, if that was to go out of business, um, we would see higher. We already have pretty high costs in Pat, which is Petroleum Administration Defense District for or the Rockies. That's holdover from World War II, but it's how we allocate. Talk about refineries in the Rockies. We already have pretty high costs for gasoline. Um, and especially where I'm from, and when you get up into the mountains in Colorado and Wyoming, you're looking at pretty high numbers. And so you you knock out another refinery and these prices keep going up. And these are, I mean, again, with just inflation, these are things that really impact the average person. And it's not like those people are going to say, oh, I'm going to go buy a Tesla tomorrow because um, that's just not in, in their nature. And but the, these are real costs to them. And as, as we start changing the energy system or, or knock these businesses out or put it into renewable diesel, whatever, or renewable fuel, which they're doing for the Holly Frontier Refinery in Cheyenne, that has an impact not just on the local economy, but also on, on the consumers as well in the region. Yeah, so Trish is going over and has been, been a student of all the things we've done to try to force a change in the energy system that have made energy more expensive, that have made energy less reliable. Um, Yes, these are not good things for human lives, for human opportunities, for predictability of business. But again, if you come back to the numbers and say, what has been the actual impact of them? And because uh, I'm at cocktail parties and people say, oh, you're in the oil and gas industry. Well, I'm sure your kids won't go into that because, I mean, how much longer are you guys going to be around? Um, and these are not like anti-oil and gas people. They just hear the news and, you know, clearly we're on a glide path and maybe halfway or so gone. Um, and then, you know, I, I love to say, well, you know, if you look at the data, um, amazingly, the last two years was the largest market share percent of U.S. energy from oil and gas ever. We've never, ever had a year where oil and gas supplied a larger percent of total U.S. energy than last year and the year before. We're just about to hit 70 percent, forgetting coal, forgetting wood, biomass, all those other things just from oil and natural gas. So like a lot of demonization, a lot of this and that, it doesn't mean that, you know, people are gonna stay at home and not drive their cars or not heat their houses when it's cold out. Um, you know, we, the, the efforts that have gone on have not meaningfully changed the world energy mix at all. The only, the only, the only thing that's the biggest swing in where the world gets energy over the last 20 years in gross terms, like, well, we spent a shitload of money on wind and solar and we're at 2%. Well, we got 100% pie. So 2% is, you know, that's, it's still the same pie, basically. Um, the, the, the biggest move by far 
has just been natural gas slowly, slowly eating into coal's market share. Oil's market share has barely moved. Um, unfortunately, nuclear is shrinking a little bit and hydro are shrinking a little bit, not because their total energy produced is shrinking, but because they're not allowed to grow. You can't build a new power, nuclear power plant. That's very- Although unfor- Japan's the new, they actually, Japan just switched course and said their new, the, one of the prime ministers that is running for office is saying that he's uh, maybe going to go pro-nuclear. So Right, and they're, and they're going to speed up the restart of their existing nuclear yeah. power plants. Because that went really well last time. Yeah. But in, but in any case, look, so I, I just say it, to, you know, for what actually happens is, is, is very slow. And yeah. as, as you said, look, even, even the plans, you know, that wind and solar are going to be gigantic. There's the announcement I saw in the elevator today. We're going to be 35% solar and it won't happen. And, and the reason is to do it, right, you've got to build huge transmission lines. Right. Because when, when there's natural gas or coal, you build the power plant where you want the power, you know, or along a pipeline and and, and that oil and natural gas. We have a lot of infrastructure. But if you want to build a new solar plant, you know, out in southeast Colorado, you've got to build transmission lines. You've got to upgrade transmission lines. We've become when I, when I was young, I traveled, I backpacked around Europe and I thought, wow, it's very pretty and it's a nice place to visit. But it's hard to do something in Europe to start a business, to build something, to disturb something. That same thing has come to the US. It's very easy to stop something. It's very hard to do something. And that as well is gonna freeze in place and make change very slow of any sizable physical infrastructure in this country. I mostly lament this, but of course it is a damning break on sort of the Green New Deal and those dreams. And to give one example, Mm -hmm. because well, I got to say two things. One, we talked about weather and we, we, they get the emissions down to zero. Weather will go back to its normal. And you mentioned Colorado snow. Mm-hmm. Well, Colorado snowpack, there's 85 years of data from 1936. And if you fit a line through it, it is flat, absolutely flat. You can pick a cherry picked year and show a downward trend. Heck, I can pick a cherry picked year and show an upward trend. But total snowpack in Colorado in our 85 years actually hasn't changed at all. The change that's been is we have a little bit less snow in the spring and we have a little bit more snow in the fall and we have about the same in the winter. And if think of the skiers, right? Everybody wants to start skiing at Thanksgiving, Christmas. Well, there's no snow then. And then spring break, you're off in your peak snowpack, but no one wants to ski anymore. You know, it's time to go play golf. So we've actually had a slightly enhanced skiing snowfall and, and I, you can't go a day without hearing the tears about the destruction of the Colorado snowfall. Um, I wish there was more snow too, I'm a powder skier, but, but like the data tells a different story. And the other one I was gonna tell was fires, right? We, we ended up putting this, I put this in our ESG report, was going over wildfires, right? That's just a, a major thing in the news now. It's climate change, it's climate change. It, we are gonna get so many emails the, from this podcast. I the, the, the short answer, it is not. And first read the summary in Bettering Human Lives report. And I reference a few other on Forest Service report on that. There's all sorts of good stuff that, out there on forest fires. But let's talk about what, what, what it will take to reduce forest fires is just to go back to the forest management we did in the, started in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and 70s until we stopped. Um, but in Bozeman, Montana, we, we, we spent a lot of time in Montana, they passed a forest, it's great forest fire risk around that city. So they, you know, through a huge process in 2007, they passed a plan 
to go out and do some fire control and some forest management to reduce the fire risk around there. Yahoo, I'm all for it. 2007, 14 years later, not one tree has been cut. It's been in litigation from environmental groups and all this. I was on an infrastructure panel here in Colorado. We had agreement of everyone on the call. If we get infrastructure funds from a federal infrastructure bill, we should, we should work on the Colorado fire mitigation bill. It's, you know, cut forests away from power lines and, and thin trees and clear out deadfall. It's sort of common sense stuff that we did 50 years ago, but we can't do now. Even when you get political agreement, even when you pass something, it's incredibly hard to actually do it. Yeah, and that's where I think that the reality check is. So you can do it in China. So you can build transmission lines. And so if you if you see all the images that you, I think it was, I was trying to go, figure out these big, who was running the wind you know, industry and everything. And I was, I was coming with that third largest wind manufacturer. There's two in Europe, uh, but the third largest wind turbine manufacturer is in Xinjiang in China called Xinjiang Goldwind. And they had a nice image on the Bloomberg and it was just all these, you know, wind turbines and all these um, solar panels. And they're all just dot along the whole, it, you're like the whole landscape is this, this image. And I thought no one's living there. I mean, that land is that, that's what it's being used for. And you can just go do that. You also have um, a ma massive amount of number of hydropower within China and hydropower is also the same thing. You have to, you change the ecosystem when you do hydropower, especially in China, because they literally pull people from their homes. They're just completely outrooted from their homes, move them somewhere else. Sometimes they move them to Xinjiang to work in factories. Sometimes they move them into the cities, but they'll uproot these homes. And then they, you're changing the water structure from where it's going. And you often create droughts, which they already have lots of places already have a problem with because they're, they're damming up this water. So Massive change to the ecosystem. Hydropower sounds really great, but you're changing something. And it's not that it's not that all these don't certain places that, you know, wind works. I mean, certain places solar can work, but they all come with a cost. And you do have to you do have to mine the stuff out of the ground. I mean, when you're making and, and I know people rip on the energy, the hydrocarbon community, because often, you know, they say, well, gosh, these people just hate the you know, they hate wind and solar. And it, it's not that it's just a reality of that. You do have to mine that cobalt to make that battery. And you do mine a lot of that cobalt in the Congo and you do mine a lot of those with children. And, you know, we have in the U.S., we have largely moved away from a lot of that stuff, th thank God. Um, and hopefully and that doesn't continue when it happens. We can usually address it. You can't address it when your value chain is in um, is in places like Latin America and Africa and then the processing. And the problem I have is the processing for almost all of this, almost all we're talking 80 percent of the processing for for batteries, for windmills, for solar is all in China. And that's because it's dirty. Um, and actually, I'm going to get to this this frack in a second. But same reason why we used to frack with ceramics. You a lot of people didn't make ceramics in the U.S. They made them in China because it was uh, relatively dirty, and you don't have the environmental standards. So, I I struggled because China is cited all the time, and China is going net zero by 2060, and China is doing this, and you know they're cited and saying, and, and they're you know they're eating our lunch. We're constantly being told they're eating our lunch in battery tech and wind and solar. Their battery tech is not that good. There's a reason why Tesla's over there. Um, and eating our lunch is, you have to, what does that actually mean? They're building um, wind and solar and they're selling it to us. So they're contributing to the emissions on a huge, huge scale. And then they're selling the solution to the problems that they're creating to the rest of the world. Um, and it looks pretty nefarious to me. And if you get digger into the weeds, it, it's, it's more nefarious than that. It's, it's, it's worse, but it's, it's a messy, messy problem. And it all creates CO2 emissions. So back to your point of it not really being about CO2, it sure as hell doesn't feel like it is. No, I mean, the decisions wouldn't support that. I'll, I'll wrap up on two things you said. One was 
Everything has trade-offs. That's why it's stupid. There's no clean energy and there's no dirty energy. Nothing comes for free. You know, if you want a Starbucks next door, all the neighbors that are around when they're building the house, they're going to hate the Starbucks going in. When it goes in, they're going to like it. But everything, oil, gas, coal, nuclear, wind, solar, they all have impacts and then they all deliver some benefits. It's all about trade-offs. This black, there's no perfect energy. There's no to me, the, the only the only I'm, I don't I don't mind the technology of solar and wind. As I say, I think solar's got some prospects. Um, to me, I just don't want the energy to get more expensive and less reliable. I, I don't whichever technology drives it away from that, whichever technology goes that way. But I, I don't care about the technologies. And when I talk about our industry and, and global policy, like I don't talk as much about wind and solar because they don't matter that much. You know, they're politically popular and all that, but they're not going to wildly change the energy mix. So. Although I have some said some very critical things about them today, it's 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 not a. I'm worried about what they're going to do to oil and gas or whatever. I'm, I'm not worried about that at all. They're they're not meaningful players there. Um, I will also say, and it, uh, this may get angry retorts as well. Like I'm a passionate free trader. The world got wealthier, and we got into a modern world because of both bottom up social organization and free exchange of ideas and free exchange of goods and competitive advantage. So we move jobs to low income countries and that's where mining is or whatever, I cheer it. Um, are they gonna have the same labor standards as we have here? Absolutely not. But China may be an exception, but in most places, no one's going to work at gunpoint. They're going to work yeah. at that job because yeah. it's better than the other choices they had. And, um, and I'm all about choices. So that, that global trade and the spreading is very out of popular now, everyone hates it, I love it. And the fact that China lifted hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty and got them into the middle class and longer life expectancy and genetically growing taller because they're not starving anymore. And I, I'm not saying you're, you're against me here, but I'm just saying in general, free trade and spreading out where things come from, I think that's fantastic. China is definitely militarily and intellectual properties and how they treat their own citizens. China is for sure a concern because in my view on China's changed. Most countries in the past, as they've risen up and as countries get wealthier and people get taken care of their basic necessities, they start to care about political freedom and rights. You get better rights for women. You get better education. Things, things tend to drift in a positive direction as societies get wealthier. And China, the last 10 years, has continued to get wealthier, but has actually drifted the opposite way. The authoritarians, even in a wealthy country, have power. Not and beyond sort of opposite. I mean... I, I we're gonna. We, I want to loop this back to Frexit because hold, hang in with us for two, just a little bit longer because I want to loop back to Frexit. But I do think it's it's probably next to energy. China might be the most misunderstood thing in the market right now um, because I I mean I if you stay up till one in the morning and you listen to Bloomberg, you can hear all the little snippets and and the the summaries of what everyone said. I think it was two nights ago. There were all these summaries of, and it was everyone was European, and no offense to the Europeans, but everything it was a it was a British accent, a European accent from the Financial Times, and I've been read through the Financial Times and read through their take on this, the recent China crackdown. It's it's quite positive. It almost has a, a, a tone of, okay, well, if, if children don't spend too much time video gaming, that's good, right? And you have to start asking yourself, I mean, and just to summarize, and what's happened within China is they, they've, you know, put some some legal, they went after DD, which is a big right-hailing app for legal issues. They basically have told, um, they've went after at-home tutoring so that a big at-home tutoring business, you know, after-school tutoring, and they cracked down on it and said there can be no foreign investment in it and that you can't make a profit. Um, and folks said, okay, well, that's just about this. Uh, they don't want these companies to make too much money and they want to bring the wealth back to the people. And 
Yeah. I mean, if, if you haven't really, if that's all you looked at with China, it's, it's a lot bigger than that. I mean, over the past 10 years and people are really conflicted on China because they've sort of been duped to a large degree on it's a big country, it's prosperous, it's it was opening up. It was opening up and then, until it wasn't opening up. Um, they came in. We had the World Trade Organization. This was 2001. And, and it, we even one of the biggest uh, redesert or I'm getting this wrong. Redesertification programs in the one of the most the best ones in the world is the lowest plateau in China. It actually worked. They they basically went in. They they use locals. Um, they studied it. They worked with locals. They worked with um, various um, nonprofit organizations and non governmental organizations. And it's actually worked. And so it gave people a sense that China was opening and they were doing stuff. And oh my goodness, if you read twenty books, all you're going to hear about is look at all the protests that happen. So if a protest happens, they think this is. You know, people uh, being you know, that they have, they can vote and they can do this. Uh, they don't. There is no there's no voting. And so I think the recent crackdown is a really interesting thing because it's still being interpreted by the market of, well, it just can't be that bad. And the problem is, I think people really think that just because the China market is so big and we all want to invest in it and everybody wants to make money. And, you know, the province of Guangdong, it, it's bigger than than most states in the U.S. So the size of the prize is huge. And the reality is, is that and I don't agree with George Soros on a lot of things. Um, but I mean, he's been telling people, hey, this is this crackdown is you're going to end up losing a lot of money. And I think he's probably right, is that, you know, if you're investing in China now and you think it's going to be OK, probably not. And the reason the only reason I bring that back is that we tend to, um, especially in a political sense, we tend to liken ourselves or compare and everything. And we also and we this is the first time in his well, not the first time in history, but this is the first time where we've had a growing economic power that people say is going to take over the U.S., but it's a communist country and it's. You know, that's not politically nice to say that it's very much a communist country. Um, and there's just a lot that goes with that that makes things really, really messy. And I say that from a, internet, a nerdy international political economy background, that it makes things really messy. But I want to pivot, if you don't mind. Glad you got the nerd word in there, too. Yeah, I know. Got to get the nerd word. He says a lifelong. I, I, he didn't see me when I was a kid. Glasses and everything. Maybe not as far, but definitely a nerd. Um, OK, so I want to pivot. So I brought all this frax in and I don't get an it's hard to pin Chris down, I and mean, he's a really busy person. So the fact that he agreed to do this was just awesome. Um, and I have you sitting here, so I get to ask this, these questions, and then I just I'm really excited about this. So I think one of our first lunches I asked you about this, but this is my you know this is Fraxan. My dad brought this home for me from North Dakota. This is Fraxan from like 2014. Bigger, you know, not perfectly uniform, just like it's whatever. It's 2040. Um, you know, we always talked about Northern White. That was super exciting, nice. It wasn't ceramic, but it was it was pretty sexy. It was, you know, decent, you know, crushed strength. It was great. It was in the Midwest. Now, and then we had this like Texas Gold, and and people are like, oh, you can't pump that local stuff. That's just not going to work. Um, and it's got too many contaminants and everything. And then this was uh, my dad was in Texas, and he had not actually worked in Texas, um, but he brought back scooped some Fraxan on location for me. And this is what, 100 mesh. And I thought, holy crap, that's if that's 100 mesh, like that 100 mesh I'm getting in the jar from whoever's given this to me, that looks really bigger than 100 mesh. This looks like 200 mesh to me. And the reason I'm fascinated by this, and then these are like diverters, which that's a whole nother question, but I'm fascinated by this is because we have in the, we've game changed the entire global oil and gas market in the US. I mean, it's, it's game changing. And I think you know, you guys, if you listen to every earnings, it changes on almost on a quarterly basis. You really have to be following it closely. And I want to know from you how far we're at from because if, if we went from ceramics and then this to this powder and I haven't seen that. And I know people love ceramics and I know they like the sphericity and this everything and they want the conductivity. But I haven't seen the production data and I can go 
every which back way and forward and looking at production data. And I know that, you know, people freaked out about infill drilling and, you know, it hasn't been that bad. We've been infill drilling. We do drill, you know, child wells and they, they are okay. We've been, everybody's been doing the DJ for decades and they've survived it and they're surviving in the Permian. And we're still kind of in the early innings on understanding that, but that's just, I'd like to know where, what do you think of that? Where are we going? Like, what's the, you know, if we can use this, this crappy, 200 mesh sand and, call, and and keep pumping this down hole and now even potentially going to local mines. I mean, it seems like we're very, we're still in the early innings of this whole thing and we don't even know exactly what's happening down hole. Yeah, I mean, I think the story of propent starting from ceramic to sand, heck, I wrote a paper only probably 10 years ago called, called contact area and conductivity, you know, or what drive well productivity. You got to touch a lot of rock because shales aren't very popular, aren't very uh permeable. So you got to have large contact area. And then you've got to be able to conduct all those fluids with as small a possible pressure drop back to the wellbore and up to the surface. And so, but the difference is in the old days, particularly in a vertical well, think of the Gulf of Mexico, a vertical well and one frack. You know, you're going to produce 4,000 barrels a day through a single fracture. Like if that stuff is small grain, crappy quality sand, it's going to be a, it's going to be a choke. It's like having a dirt road and you need a highway going down. Um, then we went to shale wells and well, good ones. They do produce 2000 barrels a day, but it was in 30 fractures. So a lot less conductivity. Ceramics maybe had a benefit, but not very much. Now, now we frack wells with 50 stages and there's 10 fracks in each 50 stage. So there's 500 fracks in the well. So even when it's smoking at 2000 barrels a day, each frack has to produce four barrels of oil a day. So that's so low that, that I can have a shorter title for my paper now. It's just contact area. You don't need conductivity. You just need something. You, the rock can't seal back up perfectly. So it's almost just the volume of something to prevent the rock from sealing. And that so should, that's, but that contact, that should tell you and give you, that to me gives me comfort and longevity in U.S. shale, because I think you're, this, this whole idea that we couldn't do infill wells with their two, I mean, the fact that you're barely, you, those are producing, they, they seal up or whatever. The fact that if you do it differently, you do it right, you can put wells closer together and you can time it in sequencing. And we seem to be in the very early innings of even just understand. I, I just did a podcast uh, recapping the SBA unconventional workshop. And I mean, it did seem like even not every single operator was delineating their sequencing right of exactly how they were sequencing their wells when they're bringing it back. I mean, some basic things that you can do on this, but that just gives me a lot of like in, in terms of longevity of how much you can produce technically downhole, we seem to be pretty early on. Yeah, I, I would say I would say we're early on, although we're making some decisions now that as always happens, right? If you want things really good right now, you sacrifice the long run a little bit. So, you know, how do you make the best wells? Well, put them really far apart so they don't interrupt each other. But then in 10 or 20 years, you get a fair amount of depletion and it's hard to go back later. Um, we used to talk in North Dakota that they needed the no oil left behind strategy because there was a lot of the best rock drilled up early on. and they made Brigham strategy. I think that was um, a like slogan. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, pre-Brigham, pre there was just, you know, there was a lot of completion and development effort that was great in the short run, but was inefficient in how much is ultimately going to come out. Now, people will go back to those fields. They won't drill infill 30-stage frack wells. They might be flooding with methane or CO2 or ethane or some kind of, there'll be secondary recovery, things will come. But yeah, well, you know, is the U.S. oil production going to go on for a long time? That's the question. Absolutely. Absolutely. We developed some of the very early frack technologies 
you know, way out in the, call it the early 90s in California in a field that was 70 years old then. You know, now it's over 100 years old. Yeah. So yes, our industry, with what we're doing now, you could say, oh, wow, there's 10 years or 12 years of locations. It's different here and there. Well, that's what we're doing now. Yeah. We're, we're not going to keep doing the same thing. That's, that's the story of our industry, to keep reinventing ourselves. The, the demand for oil and gas will be around for centuries. And in fact, for just 15% of oil is not used for energy. It's used for plastics, for materials that are just essential to the modern world, even if energy fell from the sky for free. Um, so our industry is long term, like forever. The question is going to be, where is it coming from? How do the production technologies change? What are the resources we're tapping change? And are you, uh, if you would say one simple, and I want only reason I asked this is because there was an answer that came from this SBU convention workshop. And it's something I asked you in your investor day. And I won't push you in case you want to dodge the question again. Um, but what is the, and you, know, you probably know what it's going to be. Um, but what's, what's sort of the, the, I guess, on the horizon now? What's the, what's the biggest game-changing thing happening right now in the business for Unfrack? And uh, you, you talked at length probably, probably over the course of a year about the, the massive efficiency gains that you guys have made, that the industry on the Frack side has, has gained. I mean, huge, huge for the industry, huge for the longevity, uh, especially for the upstream producers to really get their the balance sheet order. And the, the, the strides you guys have made on efficiencies is just massive. And, the, you know, how many fracks you can do per day. So that's kind of what I'm alluding to. So regardless of how you're going to answer, I'm still going to ask about simulfrax. Um, what was it about? What's the next game changing yeah. thing or yeah. simulfrax? Which is the it's question both. for both. It's both. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah, the next I, I will dodge what is the next big game changer thing uh, again, because if I knew the answer to that, and I might, but but. If I knew or did, if I if I knew, I definitely wouldn't say it. Uh -huh. um, and if I didn't know, I wouldn't say it. Right. So so don't read anything into the fact. If you, this but, was a private company, he but, might tell me. But but of course there of course there's going to be changes in you know in fluid chemistry and frac designs and well spacing in logistics of how to operate and run things better and smoother. That improvement train will keep going on. Um, what I think might be the biggest game changing thing in our industry in the next 10 years is going to be the dialogue. You know, we've hit truly an all-time low right now. We have a whole generation of people that just have no idea where energy comes from, just crazy beliefs. I mean, not that anyone's ever been sober on energy, but it's so outrageous right now. I will go out on a limb and say the next big change is 10 or 20 years from now, it will be, we'll be more sober. How much more sober, I don't know, but we're, we're near a bottom. We're near a bottom on that. And again, my prediction there is that just, you know, we've been in this age of abundance. Every, well, we, we, we got too much. We're planning to plan it. You know, in the next five or 10 years, people are going to feel price pressure creeps. They're going to feel energy shortages. They're going to feel energy concerns. And, and, and sobriety is going to return. Is gonna, the pendulum will swing towards sobriety. I think that's the big change if we sit here 10 years from now about what, what uh, people view for the energy. Way to bring it back to the macro without dodging the micro. That's impressive. Um, I think, so I, I, I'm going to bring it back to the micro just for a second. We'll, we'll close with that. So I actually think it'll, it'll happen sooner. Inflation's already happening. We're feeling it right. I mean, we're feeling it right now. And many folks maybe in this room aren't feeling it quite as bad as other folks outside of this room. And that's the reality is that people people are feeling my My family's telling me how much they're spending at the grocery store, how much it costs to fuel up in Craig. And they everybody's feeling on the bottom line. So I think it's sooner than later when people start actually voting with their wallets. Um, and I think that's going to have an impact. But on the frack side, simulfrax. I want to understand because of primary vision says we have 240 frack fleets right now and that we are going to open this up to questions. But 240 frack fleets. 
this number just doesn't seem accurate to me in assessing the market if even, let's just say, 10% of the frack fleets are doing slightly more than just a frack that they're or one well. You know, that we're not viewing it, this, the analytical, you know, we can't view the rigs the same, right? Rigs, the rig count shouldn't be viewed the same because, you know, an average well in the, in the Midland is over 11,000 feet. You know, rigs are doing more with less. You need, you need technically need less rigs. I mean, Exxon promotes this in their, their earnings call. But I mean, from a Simofrac standpoint or from fracking two wells at once, there's a lot of nerdiness and awesomeness behind that, not just from the speed of doing it and how quickly you're demanding stuff and, and demanding sand on location, but the fact that you're doing it two wells at once. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's a that's relatively game-changing if you're fracking two wells at the same time next to each other, which could also have lots of technical implications that maybe you want to frack from a technical standpoint, how the fracks are working. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that helps frack. So I'd just like you to talk about Simofracks before we close this, and then I'll let all right. Uh, a, a, a few comments. One was way back, probably 20 years ago, well, a little less than 20 years ago, in the Barnett Shale, we had written some papers about stress shadows. And I, and I always said, I, I developed a frack model years ago, and there was like three competing frack models. And I always said, fracks are like frack modelers. They don't like each other. It was amazing, the vitriol between the different people who had a different frack model. But fracks don't like fracks either. It's just a stress concentration thing. So that when fractures grow, they tend to avoid other fracks. So we did an experiment maybe 18 years ago in the Barnett Shale, where two wells were fracked uh, nearby with two separate frack fleets. The pads were a ways apart to see, does this work? When fracks grow, they don't coalesce, they avoid each other. And it turns out, as we predicted, that's true. And so, so the, you know, the first simulfrac may have been almost 20 years ago. The first sort of modern day shale frack revolution may have been by Liberty about 30 miles north of here. Where, but, but we did what we would call simulfrac, which is we fracked two wells at once, with one frack fleet, one set of iron, one control system, and then just counting on perf wellbore, perf pressure drop, and stress resistance in the rocks to cause diversion roughly equal. That was an efficiency game changer. Um, and I think that would have grown, but as simulfrac, as it's called today, has gone forward, it's in a very weak frack market, right? So there's a bunch of hardware around, everybody's worried about going out of business, Everybody wants, you know, their tr trucks to be pumped. So Simofrac today is really two frack fleets fracking on the same pad. So that's, a, I would call that less novel, but, um, but there's a lot of extra equipment. You definitely but, have extra horsepower and even other folks have said so. That's it, why I wanted it, to hear. It's two frack fleets. So, so, and so to, to your point, if, if the frack fleet freight clamp today is 240, yes, it's really 264 because 10% of those are two frack fleets on yep. the same location. Um, and so there, yes, that, that, that's happening. And the question is the, the economic model for that. There's benefits to producers because you can get a pad done faster. And again, that's something we, we do in uh, Colorado's had two frack fleets on a location, um, try, but not, not uh, working together in a little different fashion, just trying to get a pad done faster. There's benefits of getting a pad done faster and all that. But in any case, it's a uh, sobriety, you know, that, that's a, uh, so that's real, that's happening, but yes, count, count a simul frack fleet is two because it's two. Okay, that's um, fair. So you can track so, two wells at once and you can do it with crappy sand. Yes, indeed. And we are doing yes, that. Oh, we are doing yeah, it. Yeah. Well, we, we've always said, and your, your point about drilling rigs, right? You know, I mean, there, geez, there was 230 rigs drilling in the Bakken. Mm -hmm. um, and, you yeah. know, now, now there's like tw 23, now there's like 10% as many rigs and about as much activity going on. So you're right. You can't, 
you can't count, you really shouldn't count rigs or frack fleets. We talk about frack fleets. I'm sure you've heard me say that. How many frack fleets for even production? Right. That's the way things happen today. Right. Um, that's not an extrapolatable thing going forward. When we want to really do a production prediction, you want to know what activity is, how many pounds of sand are going underground per month? That's the metric. Yeah. That's what matters. How many, how many rigs drilled them? How many frack fleas pumped them? Whatever. Those don't matter. How many pounds of sand are going underground per month? That's what, that's what drives U.S. production performance. Per month? At which rate? Per week, for whatever per whatever you well, want. Yeah. Just, just, Lots just of questions. How many pounds of sand that's are going great. underground? That's the, that's the metric that will correlate the best with, with production that's coming in the future. That's awesome. Well, Chris, I want to thank you. And before we've, this audience has stayed with us. So, which is, which is awesome. And that's easy because it's, it's Chris Wright. So I, I figured you'd. No, it's not. We got to go to the, but, yeah. the beer. Um, yeah, we have it. But I want to, I want to open it up. I seriously do want to open up to questions because you don't often get a chance to just sit and, and open it. So you're, you're welcome to ask me. I'm sure you probably just want to ask him, which is completely fine, but you're, I'd, I'd love to hear some, some hard questions from the audience. I got one. Uh, we talked a lot about inflation and how your folks and Craig or what they pay to fill up. Um, obviously, as we drive, we make regulations tougher and tougher in Colorado and we drive production out of this state. It hurts the state coffers in terms of tax revenue. How significant is that and how many years does that take before our legislators in this state feel that pinch and they can't afford whatever programs they're trying to support, whatever social programs? How long does that take for them to hurt and then change policy? Unfortunately, I don't think the loss of tax dollars will do it. Um, but what I think will do it is if gasoline is four, four fifty or $5 a gallon, people are going to be pissed. Where's the oil? They're holding back the oil. They're screwing us. Um, we got to bring gas prices down. And if that's the atmosphere, then the we hate oil production in Colorado, you know, well, why was that again? Wait, it was for greenhouse gases? Well, if it's not in Colorado, isn't it just going to be produced somewhere else? Well, yes. And aren't the tax dollars, you know, the, the logic about the other illogical things about that will, the, a, a light will shine on that when people are concerned about energy prices or energy reliability. That's my guess. And they're, they're already feeling it from a state coffer. You even had, I think, even during COVID, there was quite a bit of talk of we're losing revenue. If you're producing less oil mm -hmm. and you're not getting, they lost, everybody lost it from oil prices declining. But I think the reality is you definitely lost, um, your, the state has lost revenue from that. Now, oil, uh, I mean, oil prices coming up certainly helps offset that to some degree, but it's a reality and people eventually do have to feel it. So I think it's that if if Excel increases there, if you have a 13 percent increase in your rates, people are damn sure going to be upset. And I don't care how green or how, you know, how much they want to save the environment. If they feel that in their pocketbooks, they're not going to like it. And that's when then people start voting. They vote with their feet as well. And it's not that, you know, lots of people want to live in Denver and that's great. But if it becomes a city, it's going to become like San Francisco. And what do we see in Denver? A lot of people who move from San Francisco because they can afford the house. So they're just yeah, this is a vicious cycle. But I think they'll I I think the same as Chris, the cost of energy and just the cost in general of, of everything matters. And if the people start getting upset about it, um, they start voting that way. I, I was going to originally ask a micro question, but I'm now going to ask a macro question. And it relates to information and persuasion. And so I think most people in this room are fact-based and live in a world of facts. But we leave this office building and we go out there and it's no longer fact-based. Like, I have not heard about the 13% increase in utility bills. No one else out there has. And the media isn't. 
recording is. Um, where did you get that? This is the Denver Business Journal. I mean, when I said, but, but, but you're totally yeah, right. Yeah, not 5% of people know this. The point is, largely, we're preaching the choir, right? But the people out there, they don't know that Colorado's greenhouse gas emissions of the United States is only 1.7%. If they knew that, and even the Denver City Council or the legislature knew that, they wouldn't be, have the gumption to do a lot of the things that they're doing to re restructure society in Colorado. Yes, they would, because it's not about the emissions. They're unmoved by numbers. And you said, in this room, we're number people. Well, we're number people about the area where we know some numbers. Humans in general are dominantly emotional decision makers. We are not the rational quantitative evaluators we think we are. We have a gut, we have a reaction, and we make a decision, and we back it up later with numbers if they work and, or whatever. So I think that's, so I think that's, that, that's a problem. Like, and again, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing this, testifying and putting And if you're at a cocktail party and you say that to people, you will get people defensive and, uh, you know, and they'll squirm and squab. But like in my congressional testimonies, people yawn when I get these numbers are like so damning to what they say they're going to do. And they just yawn. And it's, they don't engage in the dialogue, right? Because they don't want that number dialogue going on. But they're, they're not embarrassed there. They're not hushed. They're not like that. Like in the movies, they'd be caught. Did, but no, it's not about the numbers. It's it's one like U.S. oil and gas the emissions from U.S. oil and gas production is one percent of, of U.S. emissions. So there's a lot of emissions to go after. The grid is an, another piece, but that's even even if you even if we and this is where and the Economist wrote an article on this and even said this. People didn't care. It was one percent emissions, but that's what this administration has gone on a you know, hellfire and fury against U.S. oil and gas production because it's a symbol. It's largely symbolic. You can say, look what we've done. We're going to make it, we're, we're going to start using federal lands for, for you know, pro-environment. We're going to use it for wind and solar. We're going to do all this great stuff and we're going to get rid of federal oil and gas production and 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 that's going to be great. And and yet, until they, the administration had to go and call on OPEC to say, can, oh, by the way, can you produce some more oil um, because we want to lower, pri lower prices. And the reaction from the White House press secretary is, is literally... We don't have inflation, so by the way, don't worry about that. It's not as bad as you think. And it's, you know, I she quoted studies that she didn't seem to mention, but uh, the YS press secretary said there were studies that that they're not together at all, that if we reduce production in the U.S., you know, if we don't produce in the U.S., it's not going to impact, you know, it's not going to actually impact prices and that, you know, we're conflating things by saying that's an environmental thing. So they're still sticking with that. And the reality is that is not, it's not being, it's not beneficial for anyone except for a, it, a, a, a political standpoint. Can I do a quickie follow-up? If if it's not numbers and facts-based, how do we get the message out to those that are not facts-based? Emotion. Emotion. It is the only way. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be about numbers because the end of the day, and that's my argument against this emotion, that at the end of the day, you're hurting people's lives, you're making them poor. That's about numbers. But it can only be, it's like maybe the bedrock but it's not the tip of the spear in your argument. It has to be about emotion, about people. Remember when the Centennial pipeline got shut down, a products pipeline, there were fistfights because people couldn't fill their gas tank up. Like people care about energy when it's not there or when it's expensive and that there's something threatening to them. Then they care a lot. When energy's cheap and everything's rocking along, you know, we're rife to do a, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of idiocy. But it's how I've changed my story. Like I, I used to talk about climate change, about and there isn't really positive feedback. I mean, the, the facts are the same, just where I focus my argument today. 
The intergovernmental panel on climate change, they exaggerate the positive feedback. They do a lot of goofy stuff. They actually edit continually the surface temperature data while we show the satellite data. But you know, those are, those are in the weeds. The impoverishment of people and the impoverishment of a specific person, that becomes emotional. Um, and even when I just talk numbers here, that's only a step in the right direction. You talk about your neighbor. You know, every year, about 11% of people in this country get a utility disconnection notice. 11%. Over 10%, a similar number, report every year that they keep their house at an unsafe temperature. They don't cool it as much as they should in the summer. They don't heat it up as much as they should in the winter. And elderly people that are low income die because of that. Thousands of them die every year. You get your neighbor or your friend's neighbor who can't pay his utility bill to go in and testify at an XL thing, now people will listen. Um, but we have to take our numbers and wrap them in human stories. That moves people. And that's, a, I mean, that's actually in some, some of the executive orders I do really point out of changing people's behavior of, uh, to, to reduce your thermostat, to use less um, and things. So it's, it's something that's, uh, it's, it's already happening. And I would say being, uh, you won't change people's minds. The numbers won't change it. They're going to, they're going to get it when they see the bill. And that's how they, that's how they change their minds and being extremely passionate and invigorating. So the EIA did a report, you know, how we're going to get to net zero by 2050 or whatever, you know, sort of this fanciful report about all this, you know, stuff. That's going to be IEA. IEA, yes. <laughs> um, BP did one too. But, yep. but in them, they, they project a 25% decrease in per capita energy consumption by 2050 and like a 17% decrease in per capita energy company in poor countries. Like, just think about that, right? People that are burning wood and dung in their huts and want to have a propane stove, they want to get off their feet, ride in a bus or a motor scooter. And that people, most of the poor people live in the, near the equator, right? Air conditioning was just absolutely game-changing for the quality of life. There's billions of people without air conditioning. They don't want them to have air conditioning. Probably they want them to burn less wood in their huts. Like the 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 the, the facts of the arguments are 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 truly outrageous. And they're morally, they're morally repugnant if you look at them closer. But they need to be brought to a human scale. And those studies also need to be brought to light because that was the International Energy Agency. That was a thought piece at the request of the of the UK president of COP26. So he requested Fatih Barol of the International Energy Agency to do it. And you have to start asking, I have to start asking myself, you know, because I buy very expensive International Energy Agency monthly data from them. And yet they now cite that report, which was a used to be a thought piece. Now Fatih Barol has said it's his best work that he's ever done. And this is the that's the piece that he's quote, he's citing that says we are to stop uh, immediately today. This was like two months ago to stop investing in fossil fuels immediately, um, even though BP and Spencer Dale from the chief economist, who I know personally, have come out and said the market has a disconnect between what we're telling, you know, what we're telling them that we have to reduce our fossil fuel production because we're going to have a shortage if we do this, that there's a disconnect. And they, they were even articulating that there's a disconnect at, in within Wall Street of understanding ESG and understanding that you still have to invest in oil and gas. And and that's the problem is this is all getting muddled together. And it has, a the in my perspective, has a significant and massive momentum behind it where we listen to 
children like Greta Thunberg talk about these things. And, um, you know, she's not a scientist. Um, she loves to talk about those scientists, but she's not one. And that's the there's a passion. She's very passionate and I respect that. But um, it doesn't mean that she's right. Yeah. One last thing I get to show how the other side's killing us. Right. I, I watched the news this weekend and CNN, MSNBC and Fox News, all one of their major stories was the huge damage from Hurricane Ida, which is absolutely true, and how it's proof that we're not ready for climate change. It's getting worse. This is our reason. Fox News just hammering this thing. Like it is for Google clicks. You can get it out of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. There's been no increase in hurricanes, no increase in the average strength of hurricanes, no increase in floods, droughts, deaths from extreme weather have dropped 95% in a century with the global population growing fourfold. Like your risk of dying today is 98.5% less than it was a century ago. And they're effectively marketing climate legislation and fear and emotion and climate change because storms are scary. Like there's nothing, not a shred of fact behind it. I just can't believe. But, and I understand why politicians and activists do that. I mean, it's irresponsible and it's, it's, it's bad, but I get why they do it. But why do all the major media outlets say something they gotta know is false? But, but if you say something scary and emotional, even if it's not true, you move people. We don't wanna go into the game because that's, that's my argument against companies in our industry that write these ESG reports that apologize that we're in this industry. And they only talk about how their greenhouse gas emissions are going to be a little bit less, um, you know, and like, and like that's the most important thing they can do. No, it's not. No, it's not. The two and a half billion people need propane. That's by far the most important thing you can do. But they won't say that, right? Because because they think people want to hear, at least you're sad that you're in the industry and you've promised your 7% greenhouse gas reduction out of your little slice of this one piece of the U.S.'s little piece of a pie you know, Which means it means nothing. And I don't think it moves a ship. This is kind of what kills me because people say, well, they have to do it because, the, you know, they have to do it because they're public. And I thought I haven't seen if their share price doesn't go up, you know, they're not doing it. It's great to, to be clean. You know, we already have strong emission standards in Colorado, really strong in Colorado, but it's not moving their share price. And they are being apologetic about it in terms of what they're doing. And and um, every single earnings call, every single company after the storm in February, you guys included, we're talking about the resilience of the people in the field, which was really important. I mean, how these people in the field and, and I heard on other podcasts like the energy transition, others saying, well, you know, these these people, then natural gas guys just shut it down. And I mean, these guys were in the field trying to you guys are included, trying to turn this gas on for their families in Texas, freezing to death doing it. And it was in, it, I mean, same thing with during the hurricanes and everything. But I do the industry, to Chris's point, needs to to stand up and talk about the stuff that they do, not the stuff that they're um, trying to not do. Yeah, and given the like competitive nature that is our industry, how do we move forward collaborate like in a collaborative method so that we doesn't matter if it's you or Shell or Oxy on the front of the cover of any paper and magazine, we're all under that brush. So how do we actually say let's move collaboratively instead of competitively so that we are in fact making a difference that we all not not just us know, but that that other people can then see. So we, I've been in a number of private meetings with leaders of big companies in this industry talking about it. And, and I think one of the key things is it's not competitive. We should not be competitive in this. We're all in the same boat. Yes, we want to get better. We want to have this, you know, defined metrics. 
but we should never view ESG as competitive. Not everyone views it that way, but I think that's the most common view of it. But there are different stripes. There are people that say, hey, Chris, I agree with you, and, and we're gonna take stuff from your report, and we're gonna go that way too, because, but first, you know, we gotta get our own house in order, but we wanna do that. But then the, the bigger companies are, are just much more political. I don't think they disagree with any of this position, but they think this is the political reality of today. We got to come out for a carbon tax, and and we've got to we've got to be closer in line with what the political center of gravity says today. Um, and I'm just vehemently against that. And and one of the reasons is I think if you lose your intellectual integrity, then you're not standing on anything, right? Ten years from now, twenty years from now, believe me, there will be another mania. This will be different. How are you going to defend? But for 10 years, all you talked about was your greenhouse gas emissions. You, you knew they weren't the most important thing. You knew you, I mean, it's, you know, if you're doing something because you think that's what everyone wants, well, someone's going to want something different five years from now. That's not a good grounding to stand on. And you should stand on what you truly believe is important, what truly matters and defend it, whether it's popular or not. I'm just curious, is there, is there a risk then that because, I mean, there is the thing, yes, maybe that maybe the people don't believe copper is but the problem is that Exxon, so Exxon actually, I mean, so if you followed the engine number one debacle, and all that happened on the same day, interestingly, but Exxon lost four board seats or three three or four board seats, and they lost it to engine number one. Um, if you followed engine number one and looked at their backing, and they actually sort of, it seemed like a publicity stunt in a lot of ways, and they they were... Right after that, they started raising money for a green fund. So it seemed to me like they were doing it for popularity to go raise money for their green fund that they were doing. So you have to start asking the biases there. And then it was it was State Street, Vanguard and BlackRock all behind them that took the knee and basically said, OK, Exxon, you're not being ESG friendly enough and we're going to go ahead and we're going to go with with engine number one and we're going to do this. BlackRock literally has, you can go on, you can go look this up. BlackRock has a commitment to human capital. They have ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. It's a social component that they have on human capital, which they violated because they, all these Vanguard, State Street, and Vanguard are huge companies, are huge entities. We all know them. People have your, your retire in them, and they have massive holdings in the province of Xinjiang, and they are literally complicit in human rights violations, and yet they have the, the gall to go ahead and say this is, this, you know, E, we're going to focus on 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 for Exxon. And I'm not saying Exxon's perfect or that they, you know, didn't need a board shakeup or whatever it is, but it's the reality of a, it's a big show, you know, and there's a lot going on here. And I think as a, investors, there's a lot of risk there. And I tell people this because, you know, people bought into sh the Permian at any and all costs because investors in Wall Street told them to, because 35-year-old analysts in New York were, you got to have it, no matter what, get in there, do it. And then investors turned around and said, be free cash flow positive tomorrow. Well, it doesn't work like that. And I think that there is a risk too here with ESG is that go, go, go. And then, oh, by the way, did you didn't focus on every other little thing. I mean, there's, there's just many things here. And Shell is, I mean, interestingly enough, their earnings call was all questions. They didn't even have an earnings call. It was completely questions um, because of everything that happened. And they are, I, I believe they are fighting that ruling. And if they were to comply with it, they would have to, the, the Dutch corridor, they would actually have to reduce in their production by 3%. And so the world has to, I, I know I'll get labeled probably because of this podcast is, as, a, as a climate denier, but I think the world has to have more people that have enough balls to get up and say, 
the realisticness of this isn't very real and that you have to like people will can go into poverty countries can go bankrupt the money you just there has to be something to spend you, you're you're spending a lot of money and you have to ask what you're actually doing with it and that's a really hard reality for a lot of people to have and if you're in business and you know strategy you're not afraid of having the conversation but if you're emotionally you, you will be so it's it, it's going to be very very tricky for a, a decent amount of time i just get curious maybe Christy. That happens to the oil and gas companies as well because they want to be able to politicians control the top down. But they're oh, for sure, bad things will happen. Bad th- there'll be there'll be class action lawsuits against companies that'll that'll be forced to pay ridiculous settlements and go bankrupt. There's a good building momentum for that. Um, I hope it doesn't happen, but uh, I, I would expect it will. And you have the so the SEC stuff is pretty big. I mean the the push for the for for regulating ESG and regulating GHG emissions from the SEC is a pretty big deal because we don't have metrics in which to actually do it. And I'm not saying SEC is is one thing, but then you also have very recently. I mean this is the last last few days where there's a push by by politicians to remove Jerome Powell. And I'm not a fan of Jerome Powell's uh, policies in general, but they don't think he is hard enough on climate change. And so you're now looking, they're looking to the Federal Reserve to say, you need to start working on climate change. And you're just, we're opening, it's a huge box to open because it's there's a many, many other things that the Federal Reserve could be working on. They have two things in mind. It's inflation and unemployment. And they've already expanded that. And we've seen how well that's worked out for them, given the current situation we're in, where we have 10.9 million jobs unfilled and we have rampant inflation. Doesn't seem like he's done a very good job. So just add to the toolbox, go ahead and work on c- climate change as well. It's really messy because it's not very tangible. But that those are realities that if those start coming in the pipeline, I, I, it, that piece um, looks like it's getting messy. And I, I don't see it happening tomorrow, but it's it's growing for sure. Lewis. I just have one question. So, Chris, if you could start from scratch, keep the same resources in the United States, and let's say the same resource transmission line, so gas pipe, for example, or coal trains, and redo the entire U.S. power grid, economics are a factor. So the power cost is linked to an economic return on what you build. What does the Chris Wright approved U.S. power grid starting from scratch look like? And then we can add that to the transportation sector as well. Organic growth of businessmen and entrepreneurs right. competing to do it's no. I, I people always say, well, what energy policy? I hate energy policy. We shouldn't have an energy policy. But not we policy. should just have we should just have a a, a sober, um, thoughtful. Which I know don't go with regulatory regulations, which is why they have to be small. You just need a regulatory environment. And let innovators and entrepreneurs figure out creative ways to finance and develop and build. And of course, it'll be all sorts of diverse electricity sources. There'll be large centralized things. There'll be small things. You know, there'll clearly be nuclear and natural gas and coal and and um, and new ideas. In fact, of course, all this investment in subsidization of solar and wind, it's just slowing up the development of better energy technologies. Because nobody, you can't have a new technology that's competing against someone who's getting a pile of subsidies. We're, we're slowing innovation, slowing progress, distorting a marketplace. So none of what we're doing today, but it, but it would not be designed by Chris Wright. Okay. I think we're close yeah. to yeah. the time.
Yeah, yeah, please. Bar wine. Thanks everyone for coming. Appreciate yeah, thank you. It. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.